the revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. President Biden declared monkeypox a public emergency earlier last month in efforts to combat the rising numbers of those infected by the viral disease. Today, the infection rates have climbed to 20,000 known cases in the United States and 50,000 cases worldwide. The outbreak has primarily been concentrated in gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. However, health officials say anyone, regardless of sexual orientation, is at risk if they have been in close or personal contact with an infected person. While monkeypox has existed in Africa for decades, outbreaks of human-to-human transmission outside of the continent were first reported in mid-May. Experts say that environmental factors, including climate change, are continuing its spread. With us today to talk about the issue is Sahir Khan, Assistant Clinical Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine. He spoke with Digital Village's co-host, Leilani Elbano. Welcome to the show. Thanks. What is monkeypox and tell us about its spread. Should we be alarmed? So monkeypox is a virus that's in the same family as smallpox. It's a pox virus, which was named because it causes a rash. And this virus has actually been around for quite a long time. It's been around for many decades, first found in Central Africa, and it has remained mostly endemic to Africa over the years. It's a virus that is found in small rodents in Africa. And historically, from time to time, there were cases in humans who were exposed to some of these small rodents that were carrying the virus. There have been a couple of cases in the past where rodents from Africa were exported to other places and caused small outbreaks. But this current epidemic is the first sustained widespread human-to-human transmission of this virus sort of worldwide. And it's generally spread through intimate skin-to-skin contact, which usually includes sexual contact in most cases. So in terms of whether you should be alarmed, it's something to be aware of, but I don't think it's going to have the impact on society or the number of fatalities of something like COVID-19. Generally, 98% of the cases worldwide outside of Africa have been among men who have sex with men. Risk factors include you know, multiple sexual partners or commercial sex work, etc. If you're in a high-risk group, you should really be aware, um, get vaccinated, protect yourself. What numbers are we looking at at this point? Within the U.S., there's been about 20,000 cases. And within L.A. County, there's been about 1,600 cases. Numbers that are 
far less than we've seen with COVID-19, but in certain communities, it is very widespread. So there's about 20,000 in the U.S. And overall, globally, it's around 50,000. Why are there so many numbers in the United States if its origins were in a different continent? So some of that has to do with testing, reporting of cases. Some of the more populated countries around the world, China, Russia, etc., their reporting systems for some of these diseases and their testing systems may not be identifying as many cases. But part of the reason that this became a worldwide epidemic is this virus recently evolved the ability to spread human to human via this intimate contact and sexual contact route. And there were some super spreader events that led to worldwide dissemination of of the virus. And now I think that this, the reason that we're seeing a lot in the U.S. is partly just testing and, and our case reporting, but also that it has established itself within our communities in the U.S. We're sort of playing catch up to try to stop the spread at this point. So there was an article that I read that actually made the connection to two large gay events around May, which was gay gatherings among men. Is it wrong to make that connection as a possible super spreader? I don't think it's wrong to identify um, events as super spreader events. And by the way, another risk factor is if you've been to an event where there have been known outbreaks of, of this disease, obviously that puts you at high risk too. It's not, because I think we want to protect people in those communities. And so it's important to make everyone aware of these events that may have had outbreaks of, of this disease, because then people who went to those events can actually take precaution, potentially get tested if they have symptoms, they can get vaccinated, etc. So I, I think it's important that we identify and report when we suspect super spreader events of this disease. And I actually also think it's important that we don't downplay that 98% of the cases outside of Africa have been among men who are sex with men. And I think that just shows that we need to devote resources within that community to making people aware, to uh, concentrating uh, vaccination, testing, and treatment effort. And we need to partner with leaders in that community to really focus on the patients there. Is it established in the medical community that these gay events were possible super spreaders? There have been events that have been identified as potential super spreader events, and there's pretty good epidemiological evidence for that based on the number of cases uh, we've seen. But I don't think that it's fair to say that like, if these events never happened, we wouldn't have had this monkeypox worldwide epidemic. It's likely that if it wasn't these events, there would still be spread through other means. So in other words, for this particular virus, it latched on to a certain community and then there was the outbreak. But it's not like monkeypox cannot be spread in other ways, maybe through the athletic community or through a a different group. Is that kind of what you're saying? We we see 
even though, I'm, as I mentioned, you know, 98% of, of the cases have in, in that community, we've certainly seen cases outside of it. And any sort of sexual contact and intimate skin-to-skin contact can spread it. I mean, a lot of people have, have asked me, oh, are, are women at risk? And certainly, yes, women are at risk. I mean, if you have intimate skin-to-skin contact with somebody with the monkeypox virus, then yes, that puts you at, at risk. It can also be spread via sharing bedding, towels, et cetera, with somebody who has monkeypox. It can be spread via those materials. And so we have seen cases that were traced to exposure at a gym or sort of roommates sharing of uh, bedding, towels, et cetera. So certainly those are all modes of spread that do exist out in the world. So I, I think, and like we saw with like HIV AIDS, the virus itself doesn't know what community exactly the host belongs to. It just it spreads through these means. And if we don't deal with it now, eventually it'll spread to throughout our society, to, to other communities. And so I don't think one should be complacent and say, well, I don't fall into that particular community where we've seen the initial set of cases. I think people should say, well, this means we need to really devote resources now to stopping the spread Otherwise, we will see this become more widespread. So tell us about Africa. How was it spread there? So historically, it has been spread from small rodents to humans. And usually most of the cases up until this recent epidemic have been able to be traced to some exposure that the uh, patient had to some of these rodents that may have been infected with monkeypox virus. And so it didn't really previously show that much of an ability to spread human to human. That's actually the the recent evolution of the virus that has allowed it to have this sort of global reach. So now that is the difference. That's why we're seeing this kind of global outbreak, even though it's not as big in numbers. We're seeing it more quickly spread because because now it's human to human. Yes, the the virus has evolved this ability to cause these lesions in genital areas where it can spread from intimate human to human contact. And there can be skin lesions elsewhere too that, that can spread it. But it's just, in most cases, they seem to be concentrated in the genital areas. But certainly any skin lesion can spread the the virus. So other than these kind of physical manifestations, are there other symptoms of monkeypox like fever? Yes. So associated with the rash, many people do get a flu-like illness, fever, chills, muscle aches, sore throat. And that is, those are symptoms that you generally get with any sort of viral infection. In this case, the timing it's variable, like the fever can come before the rash, after the rash. Doesn't seem to be a very clear cut pattern. In some ways, it sounds like COVID symptoms. So 
The way that we've been trying to combat the spread of COVID, we've been using face masks and social distancing and so forth, and temperature checks in the beginning. Can we use these same kind of methods in terms of combating monkeypox, but also adding that part about not using the shared bedding? You know, I, I don't think screening for general viral symptoms is really the answer here because any virus infection causes these symptoms, fevers, chills, sore throat, muscle aches. And so my sense is that if we, we in, instituted that kind of screening, we would pick up a lot more common colds, flu, just other more common viruses. We really need to be looking for symptoms that are more specific to this virus. So that's why rash is one that we've really focused on to try to find cases that, you know, rash plus risk factors is, is our, the most specific way to try to identify cases. But I, I think anyone with a new rash, particularly in the genital region, should be concerned. Earlier, in response to the monkeypox, President Biden did call for a federal emergency. But there were concerns before he called that emergency uh, that the move would stigmatize the disease as well as the people infected. Can you tell us about his response? And what about the messaging? Do you agree with the messaging? So I believe that designation of federal emergency generally just allows more resources to be used in a particular epidemic. So I, I actually think it's a good thing because my understanding is that legally that frees up more resources to be used to, to fight this virus. You know, I think we don't want to be so scared of sort of stigmatizing that we don't give accurate information and don't sort of make the people who are at risk aware. I think the leaders of the gay community that I've either spoken to or heard interviews, they want us to provide resources and awareness within their community to, to protect um, people, to protect patients, and to make sure that, you know, everybody who is at risk is aware and is able to go get vaccinated, to go get treatment if, or, or uh, testing if they have symptoms. and. I think actually, if I have one criticism, it's that we don't seem to have a ramp up of vaccine availability fast enough to vaccinate, uh, I think, the numbers of people who are at risk. You know, I have a lot of patients who are eligible and they essentially try to get the vaccine from our public health and they say, oh, we'll, we'll call you when we have availability and they're just sitting there waiting for vaccine. So I, I think that if, if there's any criticism, I think we should be ramping up a little bit faster to really make these protective resources available to more at-risk people. And the articles uh, are saying that there is a shortage how much of a shortage is there and why are we having this shortage? Is the manufacturing of the vaccine not keeping up? So we keep a small stockpile of this vaccine. We keep stockpiles of emergency stockpiles for many vaccines for diseases that aren't widespread. 
And so initially, we just had that stockpile, and we have been ramping up manufacturing. But my understanding, you know, it, it's not overnight that the manufacturing is is ramped up. I mean, they have to change around the manufacturing facility. They have to get resources, materials that that are needed for the manufacturing. I know there have been a lot of supply chain issues in general. With even just basic resources, things like vials and tubes and just basic things that there have been some supply chain issues recently. So I think it's just logistical issues mainly. I don't think there's a, a lack of funding or a lack of will on the part of the federal government. Although I, I do think they could be doing probably a little bit more, you know, for COVID, they invoked the Defense Production Act. They were able to sort of marshal some military resources to sort of make the supply chains work more effectively. I think they could be probably doing a little bit more. Can you lay the blame on the Biden administration? I'm looking at it maybe through his lens or the administration's lens, which is, yes, this is alarming, but we're talking 20,000 cases. It's 20,000 cases now, but I think the point of, of these infectious diseases is you don't want to wait till there's 500,000 cases or a million cases to start working on it because we've detected 20,000 cases. That means that, that there are more cases out there that have yet to be tested for, detected. You know, the virus is continuously spreading and these infectious diseases if they're completely uncontrolled, tend to spread exponentially to where one person affects a certain number of people and that person affects a certain number of people. And so it's important to intervene when the numbers are manageable, like they are now. But I do think that the administration, from at least their messaging, seems to be taking it seriously and seems to be devoting resources and attention to this. And I am sensitive to the fact that you can't just manufacture like a million doses of vaccine overnight. Like, like they, these things do take, take time in the real world. What do you think about the messaging? Because when I first learned about monkeypox, I was watching cable television and that was very, very early, right? There was little mention of the gay community and now it seems to be increasing. And for some people who had lived through the AIDS epidemic, I could understand where there would be so much hesitation. I mean, it's a very intense period Certainly, I'm sensitive to people feeling stigmatized. I take care of a lot of HIV patients. That's my main practice. And many of them are in the gay community. And so I'm very sensitive to them feeling stigmatized. But for me, the important thing is for them to feel like they can comfortably access medical care. They can call their doctor and say, hey, I have these symptoms that they're able to sort of call sexual partners and make them aware of their symptoms, that, that they're, they're able to, to go get, get a vaccine or, or to get testing or treatment. So I think we shouldn't give in to this fact that, okay, there are people in our society who would stigmatize that community, so therefore we, we can't like make any connection between this virus and, and the, the gay community. I think the, the right thing to do is to call out when there is stigmatizing going on Obviously, we have to call that out as a society and, and deal with that and say this is wrong. But, you know, I think it's very important that we 
are able to get the resources to the people who are most at risk. And if the people at risk happen to be in a particular community more so, then that community should be prioritized. Maybe now, because we're not dealing with the same kind of homophobia and attacks against the gay community, we're able to have the kind of messaging that we feel that we need in terms of addressing issues because we're not dealing with the same barriers. So I don't want to pretend that homophobia doesn't exist in our society at all. I think we've come a long way since the mid-1980s. And I do think that the vast majority of our society is much more tolerant now than it was then. We are more amenable to doing the right thing as a society in terms of our response to this virus now than in the mid-1980s. On to a different topic. Many are calling it a zoonotic outbreak. What does it mean that it is a zoonotic disease? And again, you have all of these conspiracists saying COVID was manufactured. With monkeypox, a natural event? I think this is a natural event that these viruses were circulating in rodents and transmitted sporadically to humans. And then... At some point, the virus evolved the ability to transmit via this new sort of intimate skin contact route. And I don't think that this was in any way a man-made event. Now, I will say that these viruses are, in general, increasing in terms of having these sorts of epidemics because of climate change, because of increased migration of peoples, because of sort of globalization. Some of these trends on a macro level are increasing our risk of having these epidemics. But in this particular case, it was a natural evolution of of the virus. In terms of COVID, people are looking at environmental destruction as being part of the reason why we're seeing more COVID cases. For monkeypox, you just mentioned climate change. How does that relate? The habitats of these animal carriers are changing. In many cases, humans are more exposed to these animals because of changing habitats, changing climates. Also, you know, environmental destruction, like if there's a particular habitat that now becomes a residential area that's bringing humans in contact with animals in that area. And many of the animal vectors for these diseases are increasing their range due to climate change that we're seeing. I mean, this is most classically described for something like Zika virus, where the mosquitoes are increasing their range due to climate change. But similar things are happening for other diseases like monkeypox, the particular rodents, as the climate changes, they, they may be able to go to, to new areas. And more of the world is going to look like sub-Saharan Africa in terms of climate as we go into the future. So certainly, I think that plays a role. It's hard to tie any one event to climate change, right? Because it's, it's an overall macro trend. But I think we will see increasing numbers of epidemics and new diseases pop up with greater frequency. I sort of compare it to the the hurricanes, right? Like you you can't say any one hurricane is is necessarily due to climate change, but we see 
more and more hurricanes of, of higher intensity over time. And so that overall trend certainly has something to do with climate change. Playing devil's advocate, I mean, hey, you know, these vaccinations and these technological advances are great, but they're not really addressing the future onslaught of environmental destruction that leads to these zoonotic outbreaks. So it seems like it's patching something up, but it's not preventing or ending these outbreaks. Yes, it's hard to overnight just stop destroying the environment, stop putting out carbon dioxide. And there doesn't seem to be a will yet amongst the sort of economic powers to really address this. I mean, we're a society where profit is is a main motivator. So until our society sort of completely changes its values to where that's not the primary you know, goal or motivator or, or means to success, then it's going to be difficult. Nonetheless, I think that you are bringing up a good issue, which is basically until we also address these environmental issues, we're going to see this. So maybe we need to look into that. Definitely. I think as a society, we need to recognize the connection between infectious disease and environmental issues. Well, that wraps it up. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks. That was Sahir Khan, University of Southern California's Assistant Clinical Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Keck School of Medicine. He spoke with Digital Village's Leilani Elbeno. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you you online. online.